0: It's interesting to me about the faith in life, our faith in Christ connection. So Zoe and I went on the, the uh, LA trip two years ago with Cry Out, my oldest daughter Zoe. Um, and we, did we come late for some reason? We came late for some reason. We Flew in. You guys were already there. And then they go out and help in Urban Ministries. They're, they're, they're based in a place and they go out and every day. People are assigned to a location. So I, I got there. They threw us in a van and said, you're going to this place. So all right, let's go. So we show up at Faith in Christ Ministries in Crenshaw. And I walk into this building, and it's very much like this, in a sense. It's this warehouse with a kitchen and a lot of junk laying around. And uh, I thought, man, this kind of reminds me of Harambe a little bit, you know? And uh, but even as I walked in that place and we started to help, I just, Christian Bravo was assigned there too, so Christian it was his first year on that trip, so we got to work together and talk together a little bit, and I, as we talked, I remember just thinking to myself, like, this could totally be proud L.A., like this place, like what these guys have been doing for years, the people who have been doing the ministry in that area, they have a facility, they have after school programs, they have all this stuff, they have feeding homeless, uh, just reaching out to the poor in, in their community, and they have a facility right in kind of the heart of where they need to. And I just had that impression, you know, and Christian and I talked about it. he's like, Yeah, you know, you know, someday this and that. And then as I'm talking to Celestine, he said, you know what, our house is five minutes from there. Like, God God just I feel like God was like connecting the dots already as they were getting ready to go to this place. And it came back to my mind when we were talking the other day that when I walked in that place just thinking, this could be it, like this could be crowd LA. And at the time I was thinking, We'll send Christian <laughs> <laughs> but you know how God does, so.
1: I actually, um, kind of towards that point, I used to go to Faith in Christ, and uh, we would, like, carve turkeys for their Thanksgiving dinner. I probably carved, I don't know, 15 turkeys in that building. Uh, I came to Harambe uh, because of a Yelp review, and (laughs) how else do you find a church? (laughs) Uh, and, and I got here, and I, well, so part of what caught my eye is there's a there's another organization in Pasadena called Harambe, and uh, it, you know, there's just all of these relationships that connect Mike Gunn uh, to that organization, and then he came up here and was like, hey, I'm going to steal that name and use it on this church, uh, and and I thought, hey, if they have this similar interest in Swahili words, they must be the kind of people that I am. And so I came, this was actually the first church, I think, in my like search for churches, that I was like, all right, go down the Yelp reviews. I'll come to this Harambe one. And I saw Celestine and Tara and was like, wait a minute, I know those people. Uh, and so I started coming to Harambe because Harambe is so connected to a community that I was part of in Los Angeles. Uh, and it, it just kind of shows how... Uh, we as a church are so much bigger than just what's going on in this building that we are both receiving, because Celestine and Tara and I all came from that part of the church in L.A., and also sending and taking people, sending Chris and Fashe back to that community to, to invest in them. There's this cross-pollination going on. Uh, so I, I bring all that up just because that actually kind of connects to what I'm going to be talking about today, so... I just want to harp on that idea of the connectedness far beyond this building. Uh, so I actually got pulled over uh, this weekend. I was crossing the 90. It was like 1 a.m. Uh, you know, the lights come on behind me, and I was like, oh, pulled over. It turns out I was going 74 in a 60, and I'm, that's a lot faster. Uh, and the police officer informed me that I was having some trouble staying in the lanes as I came out of the tunnel. Um, I was probably, I was just tired of the podcast, highway hypnosis, just cruising. It was late, so everybody was going that fast, but I was the one that got pulled over. Uh, and so I was bummed. I was like, and this is going to be an expensive ticket, it's not what I wanted. She went back, checked my license, and came back, and in her infinite wisdom, she let me off with a warning. <laughs> I was like, 14 miles over, that's pretty, that's pretty good. Uh, so. Yeah, I had this uh, engagement with the law, and she let me off. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to look at 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through more than 11 today. Uh, but I'm going to go ahead and read that passage right now. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them? Oh, lost Where was I reading from? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the soft, nor man nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful to me, you say, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and he will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that our bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person comes against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit from within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. There's kind of three sections that are going on in this chapter. Uh, the first is about lawsuits among believers, and then there's sort of this list of sins uh, and, and, and the inheritance of God, and then finally he comes into this longer section about uh, law and t- uh, how we are justified. Uh, he starts off with something kind of mundane, right? These, this lawyer business of civil lawsuits among believers. But he puts a lot of emphasis on it. He he draws a lot of importance out of this topic, saying, you know, this is to your shame. It would be better for you to be defrauded. And he plays this up uh, a lot more than you might think. But uh, at, So two weeks ago, Mike Gunn was here, and he was talking about 1 Corinthians 5. And I think that grants a lot of light to what Paul is saying here. Uh, Mike told us that our individual righteousness, when we do good, doesn't really matter that much. It's what the world expects of us, to be good humans. What impresses the world is when we as a community get together and collectively do righteousness If we brag about the good that each of us individually does, we just come off as prideful. But when the world sees the church coordinating and interacting to love the world, they see us at the work of God. And like a city on a hill, emitting light for everyone to see, they look at us and say, those people can show us the way. So Paul is saying that it is more important for us to be united as a community than it, for, is it, than it is for us to avoid being defrauded. He says to have lawsuits at all with one another is already, de- already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? It's better to have the law broken, to have these contracts torn up, than to show discord in the family of God. Paul is essentially telling us that we are loyal to unity with each other instead of loyalty to the law. Uh, I, I think that this is also a much deeper issue than just civil lawsuits, those contracts, this very specific behavior that's applicable to specific people who opt in to this agreement. I think this goes beyond just those kind of laws to both Uh, sort of government laws where everybody has to obey these things and even deeper to what we understand as moral and spiritual law. Why do I believe that? Paul kind of takes these statements to the next level in a few of these verses. He says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Now, I don't totally understand what it means to judge angels, but what I don't think it is, is employment contracts or copyright claims in the spiritual realm. To judge these spiritual things, to say that one day the saints will judge the world, is necessarily a moral judgment. It is mediating over these kind of deeper philosophical things that are not just about temporary governments or Contracts between individuals. Paul goes on and he makes it clear that the source of our authority to judge angels is also something spiritual. So, if you're not convinced that just uh, the fact that we will judge makes this also a spiritual principle, he says, and uh, he says, and such were some of you sinners, but you were washed, you were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And later he says, you are not your own. You have been bought by a price so that you may glorify God in your body. The only reason that we, sinners, who should not inherit the kingdom of God, can judge, the only reason we can inherit Is because we've been washed and justified by Jesus and the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus' authority to judge angels that we use. So, under this message is this idea that the gospel is not a black and white rule book, it's not a straightforward do this and you're done. It can't just lead you to the right thing. Because, as Paul says, it's better to be defrauded, to have that law broken, in order to live out the unity that the kingdom of God has. But does that mean Paul has no regard for the law? I don't think so. Uh, I think his perspective on law is deeper than that. Uh, One of the things that's happening in the third section of this uh, passage is that It feels like the Corinthians have written him a letter, and he's quoting back pieces of that letter to them and and helping them understand the things that they're saying more deeply. For instance, he says, All things are lawful to me. This sounds like a quote from the Corinthians. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So I think Paul is quoting these things because he's agreeing with them. Implicit in his qualification of these statements is a belief that at their core, they are true. I'm not saying there's no right and wrong, but what I think is happening here is we're seeing that judging right, right and wrong is not easy to determine. Understanding what we should be doing is not a simple rule book. Instead, we have to make judgments about what is right and wrong in each context. And the beautiful thing about grace is that when we fail at those judgments, we are forgiven and we're covered. That allows us to be free to love, to make those choices that better fulfill God's uh, desires for the world. I think part of the reason that That is how the universe works, is that the law is too blunt. The law is not universal, and it is not applicable to all situations. There's an interesting thing that happens in uh, the early books of the Bible, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. You can almost see these thought processes, where uh, there's a verse that's like, you should be doing this thing. And then there's a verse underneath it that's like, and in this situation, you should do it this way. But then there's another verse that's like, well, there's this other context in which you should be doing it this way. And then if this thing maybe happens, there's another. And you kind of get the sense that like, we probably hit all those circumstances and somebody was like, ah, we, need a, we need a little caveat here. We need a, a corollary. And ultimately, you can't just keep going with that every situation you find that is a little bit different than the thing that the law states, you can't just make another law. You're going to end up with an, a ridiculously long document. Um, as an example of this, like uh, places like McDonald's, uh, franchise restaurants, they have franchise manuals, and, and they're like this thick. They're huge. And they deal with every possible situation that you might encounter running a restaurant. And, and even then, there are circumstances that come up and usually make the news uh, where they're just like, we didn't know because the manual didn't say what to deal with that situation. And running a restaurant, I, like, you know, no shame on the people who run restaurants, but it's a lot simpler than a life. So, if we can't even make a complete guide over a restaurant, how could we make a complete rule book for living our lives? Think back on your own life. And think about the times when you've struggled to understand what was right. You couldn't just open the Bible to the chapter and verse which tells you what to do. You can study and learn and get a deeper understanding of God and find that applicable in your situation. But it's not as simple this than that. When I think about my own life, when I've struggled to decide what was right and wrong, uh, there are a couple circumstances where I've tried to have a rule book and failed. My sex life, for example, I think that's one that in the West comes up for a lot of us. What should I be doing? When I started out uh, kind of exploring this whole romantic thing, I had put together sort of a law of body parts. This can touch that. At this point in the relationship, this body part is okay with these. Don't touch those until you're married. Uh, And I thought I had that figured out, and I could follow those rules, and I would stay pure. Um, I, this kind of got thrown off at one point. I started dating this girl, and uh, turns out, so the first time I made her orgasm, all I did was put my arm around her and touch her waist, and that was all it took. That was sort of her superpower. And that really uh, threw a loop into my, my system, right? Because orgasms were supposed to happen so much later with such different body parts. And, and you maybe say, well, there's a more cautious approach. You could try, try to stay within that law, maybe just no physical intimacy whatsoever. Uh, well, that also didn't work. There was a time uh, later we, we were feeling, we I don't remember what we were discussing, but we were feeling particularly emotionally intimate. And I had to change my shirt. I was across the room, took off my shirt, jokingly just like flexed at her, and she had an orgasm. And it's like, I'm not not even touching her. Across the room. Uh, So so that whole system did not work. There are circumstances and contexts where that law just breaks down. So I came up with a new system of seeing physical intimacy. And I, I thought, you know... There are all of these different ways that we are intimate. Uh, you know, there's physical intimacy, there's also emotional intimacy, there's financial intimacy, where you, you know, initially just show people your, your finances and they help to understand your priorities in money. And then later you begin to share a bank account and kind of that financial dependence on each other is as financially intimate as you can be. There's social intimacy. Do we share friends? Who gets to keep which friends when we break up? (sighs) And each step deeper in that intimacy uh, is harder to escape, and it needs more support. And so I thought, well, okay. Physical relationships are about things becoming more intimate. And uh, so they're sort of like the least intimate sexual intimacy, which is just like, I saw a person, and they are beautiful, And in many ways, that is a sexual experience. It's the least intimate sexual experience. But as things come closer and closer, and eventually, uh, you know, sex is sort of the deepest kind of physical intimacy. And so I thought, you know, as long as each stage of intimacy is growing together at the same time, and you get to, you know, commitment intimacy the same time as you get to sharing, checking account intimacy, and sharing friends intimacy, that's when you're sharing Sexual intimacy. Uh, And then, pretty suddenly, uh, I realized, I just made all that stuff up. That's not in the Bible. You know, it, it is aligned with lessons that are taught in the Bible, and it finds its foundation in the Bible, but those were just things I thought was true in my life. How can I live by that? And it was kind of impossible. None of my relationships were ever balanced. They don't work in in perfect harmony. You stumble through and you figure it out and you grow with that person. Another area where I've struggled with law and patterns and how should I live is my finances. Jesus Jesus told 39 parables and 11 of them were about how we should spend our money. He really cared about how we spend our money and it's really hard to figure out where your dollars go. I read a book called uh, Rich Christians in an Age of Hun- Hunger. It is a great book. Uh, it provides context for how money works in the entire world. Who has it? Who doesn't? How does it flow? And all along the way, it brings in these ideas about what Jesus was talking about money. Should we be rich Christians? How can we reduce suffering in the world? Uh, there's a really interesting quote in that book. Uh, the United States fishing industry catches a ton of fish, and some of those things are bones and heads and fins and things that uh, we don't like eating in America. Um, if you know what surimi is, it's like the like artificial crab or like crab cakes. The way they make that is they just take all of the pieces of a fish and they grind it down into protein and then like cake it together. and it, And it's good. It's awesome. Like. I love artificial crab. Um, The quantity of fish parts that the United States fishing industry throws away is enough surimi, enough fish cake, to provide the protein requirements of everyone in the world. So there are immense opportunities for us to address people who are hungry and who need clean water which is exactly what Jesus told us we should be doing. If the United States gave away 10% of their GDP, there would be no more poverty in the world. If the world, if everybody said, let's give give 2% of our GDP to solve poverty, there would be no more poverty in the world. Uh, And so I think about, as a Christian, I have a certain responsibility to my neighbors to make sure that they are provided for. Because, God has provided for me spiritually and physically, and I should be part of his kingdom work, extending that joy and care to other people. So I think about my personal finances, and I say, well, I have money, I'm a rich person, Uh, I can do a lot of great things. Should I just give away all of my money? Should I live on the absolute minimum that I can get away with? Obviously don't because I have cool pants from Sweden. Uh, Aren't they awesome? Uh, There's a bakery near work, and they have the most amazing baked goods. I've learned that the best French bakeries are run by Asian people. I don't know why, but it's true. Uh, And I think about, you know, there's this wonderful sweet chocolate croissant. Should I spend my money on that, or should I drink Soylent? It's a lot cheaper. Uh, You know, I think in many ways, like, why we are here, what life is about, is enjoying those simple pleasures. So maybe I should do that with my money. There isn't a clear, like, oh, I should do 10%. That will solve world poverty. Uh, Instead, I have to make these fuzzier choices because I don't have a simple rule to follow. So, so those are some of the reasons that we're not loyal to the law, where it is more important uh, to be loyal to the people around us than to a rigid rulebook. But well, what do we do? How can we get past that? Uh, there's, there's a philosophy in martial arts, uh, and, and also it's kind of been adopted by agile software development, so it's probably actually more popular there than it is in martial arts. But the philosophy is called shu-ha-ri. And each word is, uh, has its own meaning. Shu means obey, ha means detach, and ri means transcend. And so in martial arts, uh, each stage... Oh, there we go. Each stage uh, of learning a martial arts takes place through shu-ha-ri. Shu is about obedience. It's about learning moves and repeating them over and over and over again until it just becomes the way your body works. Obey. Follow. Be precise. And eventually, uh, you'll learn all these moves and you'll be able to defend yourself. Uh, but the next step is... Oh, uh, let me, let me uh, talk about my own life, how this played out. So uh, this philosophy of development, Chu Ri has been very instrumental in my life uh, in a few ways, both as a writer and spiritually, and, uh, and in, in sort of all of those kind of decisions that I've had to make about my life that I mentioned earlier. Uh, one way is, so when I started writing, I was kind of a rebel and I was like, this language doesn't make any sense, I'm gonna do it the right way. For example, how we use possessive apostrophes uh, there 's an apostrophe in the girl 's meal frank 's meal there 's always an apostrophe unless it's then there 's not an apostrophe the apostrophe only appears when it hit, and when it's it is uh jammed together this doesn 't make any sense it 's not orderly it 's not regular and I was just going to do it the right way. What I learned later is uh that you know people just they look at that and they're like, "He spelled the word wrong." Uh, and and I found that you know actually punctuation is kind of important. If you want people to understand uh, how you're trying, what you're trying to say, you need to be using the right punctuation. So so that was my process through obedience. Um, here's a great example of a paragraph where every comma is allowed. Um, But you see, there's like a comma constantly. That's nonsense. We should never do that. Uh, So, okay. Hey, whoa, that's not the right video. Getting ahead of myself. Do you see? um, There we go. That's the video I want to be on. Uh, So the next step. So that's obedience. And uh, the thing with obedience is that Uh, you're still going to get beat up by a master. It's not good enough. Uh, The next step is detachment. It's when you have exactly those moves so well that you don't have to think about them, that you can detach from that process. And you can be analyzing it and thinking about the why and the purpose and the spirit behind those moves. You begin to learn, you know, maybe this one was designed in a certain way where your feet are planted, but... It might also be applicable when you're falling because you know the reason for those movements and why and what parts are important. For me, uh, in my development as a writer, yeah, I I started to see, okay, punctuation, what matters in language is the use. I want to communicate with people. I want to get ideas there. I started to understand that where we put commas and semicolons represent things we do in speech, how we pause and how we connect ideas, and that if I wanted to communicate with my audience, uh, I needed to give them those clues and those pieces. That's how to best generate the ideas that I want them to understand. I started to see punctuation as a reflection of the way we speak rather than rules about how we write. The final step, re, means to transcend. And I think Jackie Chan really demonstrates this well. There is no school of martial arts about ladder fighting. You can't just practice all of the right moves for, you know, beating up a guy with a ladder and doing all these tricks. Uh, but Jackie Chan knows martial arts so well. He understands the purpose, the movements, why things exist the way they are he naturally finds ways to fight that transcend his training. They, they flow from the purpose, and they get their form from his understanding of how his body works and how defense works. As a writer, I continued to develop this way. And I began to understand poetry a lot better, and jokes and humor Because there's a deeper thing that's happening in language than just communicating and generating ideas. How do you play with words? How do you create things that aren't what you said by using what you said? Uh, If you don't know, there are four meanings for effect. Uh, Effect E is uh, something that came out of, it's the result of something. Uh, Effect is you affecting something. There's also someone's effect, which is the emotion you see on their face. And then this is the best one. Uh, Effects means it produces. So don't ever use the last two and try to spell these correctly. There's a random grammar lesson for you. Uh, Okay, so this process, I I talked to you about how I grow as a writer, but I've also seen this process in my own spiritual life. Uh, I talked to you about the law of body parts. That was me trying to obey. And I think that when you are immature, when you first start out, and you don't understand a topic deeply, it's the easiest thing to do is find a law and live by it and be cautiously. Uh, In a way, you could look at Israel this way. They didn't know God the way we know him today, and so they received a law in the Old Testament and they tried to live by it. The next step as you grow is you begin to understand uh, how love flows through the law, the purpose, the spirit of the law. For us, that's when we begin to understand grace. It allows us to become more welcoming to others, to accept, I see that you are on the other side of this line that I call the law, but I can still connect with you. I can still bring you into my church and show you grace. I can be all things to all men instead of worrying about who does what and how. And finally, as we mature in our relationship with God, we learn to live by that relationship and we transcend the laws. You'll find that many of the things that are forbidden by the law aren't so much off-limits as they are far away from who you want to be. The more we become like Christ, the more we look like a servant, and the more we die to the things that the spirit of the law forbids. Why would we kill when we love? Why would we abuse when we admire? Why lie when the truth sets you free and grace keeps you safe? How do you How do you get through this process? How do you move from blind obedience to understanding and ultimately the transcendence of love? I would love to say, here is a 10-step process. Here is a rule book to guide you through this growth. But I think you understand by now that that doesn't exist. There is no road. Each one of us has to go on this journey ourselves, but we're not going alone. Every step of the way, God is there with you, and all around you is the church walking their own paths, crisscrossing with yours. Our spiritual training takes place in the context of that unified church, in in that community that the world sees us living out, that's where we grow. Now, you might think, that sounds like a lot of work. That's hard. That's a long trip. And I agree with you. All of these decisions are difficult. All of these judgments are hard. It's much easier to take our struggles to the world and to say, you judge. Tell us what's right. But even though it's hard, maybe our reaction shouldn't be to turn to the world. Maybe our reaction should be be to make space in our lives to address that challenge. After all, we are not our own. As Paul says, we are slaves, bought with a price. These are the things that God prioritizes in our lives. And so we should prioritize them and spend the energy and the labor it takes to go on that journey and understand how to live with love instead of law. So there's a part of this passage that I want to dig into because I think it's really relevant to this topic. And I think it's an area that the church has struggled with a lot. Uh, So there's this list of sins inside of, uh, um, and I'm, I'm going to read that list real fast, uh, and I want to focus on three of, three of the words in this list. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the soft, nor man-betters, nor thieves, nor the greedy nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So there's one that stands out to me, revilers. And you're like, but what about those other two weird ones? I want. It. We'll get to those. Uh, so to revile, what does that mean? That means to speak against or to abuse with your language. To be somebody who says mean, hurtful things. That's not to speak against injustice, but it's to be abusive. To harm with the way you speak. To throw insults. And I think that this is an area that the church has failed a lot lately. Even though Paul says, "For well, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not inside the people, those inside the church with whom you were to judge? He said that last two weeks ago in chapter 5. Uh, Instead, when the world thinks about what Christianity is about, what do we stand for? The things they bring to mind are our condemnation of abortion and homosexuality. But that's not the message that we should be shining out of our city on a hill. We should be shining a message of unity and love. And so I want our church, uh, and, and I say that Uh, as the universal church of Jesus uh, to be one which does not revile because that's something that separates us from inheriting the kingdom of God. Uh, So one of the things that I think we fail at this most is actually the next two things in this list, how how we interpret the next two things in this list. Uh, And that's how we treat gay people. Uh, I, I don't know how much of this happens in Harambe in particular, but if the church anywhere is failing at this, it is the responsibility of all Christians to correct that. So I used uh, two, I, I kind of translated this differently than you might have heard um, this verse, where I said, nor the soft, nor the man betters." Most translations uh, take both of these words and just say those who practice sexuality, or homosexuality. Um, the first word, uh, malikos. Okay, let me, let me take a step back. So I'm going to dig into the Greek of, of this. And that's not because I think English translations are inferior or that you can't get to the truth, uh, through just opening your Bible and reading it. I absolutely believe that. The translations that we have today are wonderful, amazing, uh, works of science and art, uh, there are 31,102 verses in the Bible and I have found four that really hinge on, on how do we translate this Greek and it's hard and it's challenging and there are a lot of words that have been forgotten. Uh, well, I mean four words that have been forgotten about. Whenever you translate any ancient text, we don't have an ancient Greek speaker to go, hey, what does this word mean? They all died a long time ago. Um, and th- these four verses that I cannot understand and I think that we collectively as a society really struggle to translate. Um, the first one is, uh, you know, the first commandment. Uh, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Uh, the literal Hebrew translation is do not carry the Lord's name into the void. What does that mean? We don't know. We don't have a clear, you can't just look that up in the dictionary and be like, ah, Clearly. I understand what this means. Uh, In many ways, it's richer, it's deeper, it's poetic. Like, to bring to nothing, to carry who God is into meaninglessness. That's a lot more than speaking his name in vain. We can come to a deeper understanding by looking at that literal meaning, but it remains a mystery, something we can meditate on for decades and centuries. Uh, Second, there's a verse in Peter that's like, and then Jesus descended and brought back up uh, condemned souls. And and I'm like, "What is? where did he descend from and to, and where is he going? Does that mean he went to hell? Were there people in hell suffering that then after he went didn't have to be in hell anymore? It's really complex and hard to understand passage and hard to translate passage. Uh, And then there's another one. This is three of the four passages that I I think we struggle to translate, which is... um, It's something else Paul said Uh, God is the head of Christ Christ is the head of man and man is the head of woman therefore a woman should have authority over her head and that's ambiguous a lot of times we translate she should have like a symbol of authority over her head and we say head coverings but I think it also makes just as much sense to say a woman has authority to make her choices her own choices about her head thus wearing a head covering is up to her Uh, And finally, this I believe is one of the other four very difficult to translate passages. There are two words here. The first one is malikos, which just like in English means soft. And in other texts, uh, it's used to mean as wide of a variety as the word soft is in English. If this was not next to the the other word that's here, I don't think anyone would ever associate it with homosexuality. It's used to describe clothing that is very fine and nice. It's used to describe people who are soft of character or cowards. It's used to describe a host of different things. So one of the things, like to me, what stands out to this most clearly to me is those who are soft of character, which I think speaks a lot to a group of ways that we can fail. That's sort of the interpretation that i that I think is best uh so the next word uh which is arsenicoites, is etymologically two words jammed together uh it means it's man or human and better or like the verb form of bed uh so you know you might say something like take someone to bed there's there's a sexual implication there uh and To understand these words, the way we translate words is we look at how they're used. Remember I talked before, what matters about language is how people understand it. So we look at other ancient texts, both before um, the writer used this word and their contemporaries. Who else was using this word at the same time? And then we look at words that people who came after them, how they used it. How do they understand that word in light of what someone influential like Paul said? Well the bad news about this passage is that it seems like paul made this word up the very first time we ever see this uh word in all of the greek texts that we have is this passage and uh it comes up so it's also not in any of paul's contemporaries no one else uses this word until uh, hundreds of years later and mostly it's just quotations of this passage so that doesn't give us a lot of insight uh Later on, different authors use this to uh, mean all sorts of different sexual sins. Uh, and sometimes it appears in like economic lists of sins, like greed and, and stealing. Uh, and the reason that we translate this specifically as homosexuality is because there, is, there was sort of the King James of the day, right? The Bible translation that everyone used is called Decepticon. And uh, it has this verse, which is, uh, man should not lie with man as he does his wife. And so, you know, that seems like two men having sex. And it has this word, "arsena" and "coita." And so, in, you know, we put those things together and we say, well, he's talking about that verse. Like, that's the, the version of the Old Testament that Paul would have memorized. And clearly, the Jews that he's speaking to would have made that same I get it. I follow that reasoning. Uh, but the, the flaw that many scholars come to, and, and one thing that I'm like, well, okay, uh, is that a lot of times the pieces of a word don't make up the meaning of the word. Uh, you know, for example, we have a mandate to carry out God's love for the world, but that's not a date with a man. Um, in the same way, butterflies are not dairy products, even though they say butter in their name. Uh, and so translating this passage is really hard and I, I say all of that to to bring up the point that when you're at no point should your theology hinge on the translation of one Greek word and yet today as modern Christians we've picked this up as sort of a crusade we've taken this passage and and other similar passages this is not the only one that people use uh, to condemn homosexuality. Uh, but we we take this passage and others and uh, we draw this line and say this is the line you can't cross. This is the law that's not allowed and we will kick you out if you're part of this. You're not welcome here. But that's against the whole point. It's not about us following the law. It's better for us to be defrauded than to be disunified, to not show grace and not to welcome people into our family. How does that play out exactly? What are the the choices that you have to make? That's part of the journey. That's part of understanding the law and then detaching from it and transcending through it. I hope that as a church, uh, This does not become our banner. This falls away as something from history, a way that we screwed up. And instead, I hope that we become known for the unity and peace that happens in the church. Hopefully the world isn't forced to live like us. Hopefully they're drawn to live like us. Let's pray. God, thank you for uniting us and giving us a higher calling to love and community and peace. Thank you for giving us wisdom and and bringing us on this journey of growth. Please continue to remind us that heaven is not a place. It's a community. Bring us understanding and growth. And remind us that in all the ways that we fail, in all the ways that we choose wrong in in our attempts to live out your love, teach us grace and help us to know that no matter where we screw up, we are part of your family. And that ultimately we're striving for that. We are brothers instead of enemies, instead of people swindling and fighting in lawsuits over each other. We ask all these things with the authority and justification of the one person who brought us into this family, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're going to take community, communion.